Hello, my name is Rebecca, and you are listening to an out-of-character episode. So, you're probably thinking, what gives, Rebecca? I was told that there was going to be an actual episode. And you'd be correct. You were told that. You should have that. (laughs) But, uh, sadly, uh, life decided to step in the way this week. Um, currently we're not ahead of schedule like we've been hoping to be, you know, getting in front of everything and having episodes done a few days or weeks ahead. Um, so that sucks. But, um, this past month has been really, really bad. Um, past few months, actually. Um, I lost a dear friend, um, a pet, and, uh, it hurt really bad. And then we, um, just ended up not having a lot of time. Steven started working overnights full time. Uh, and I got a promotion at my current job, which means more hours doing that, which means less hours doing the podcast. (laughs) Um, and, uh, it's, it's been, it's been really tiring. So that's why things have been a little erratic in our release schedule lately. Um, this week was supposed to be Baker's Night. We're pushing that to next week. I'm so sorry, guys. (laughs) Um, we were hoping to have things out. Um, we didn't realize that this week was going to be Baker's Night until literally, like, Wednesday. Um, (laughs) which isn't very helpful (laughs) for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think that everybody's really going to enjoy it, though. I know I'm going to enjoy it. Um, it's going to be really fun to finish recording and get everything out. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what's been going, going on with us. Um, things have been, uh, erratic and, um just not, not super easy. Uh, I can definitely say that if, if we could monetize the podcast more, we definitely would. Um, because one thing I've really wanted is just to work full time on the podcast, uh, just really crank things out and be able to fix our website and write and edit more episodes. Um, Stephen and I have been talking about maybe trying to find a third person who can help write episodes, um, or edit things, um, just come up with ideas. Uh, it's, it's been an interesting time to say the least. Um, but here we are. Um, I do want to take a few moments to give a few shout outs. Uh, first, Heckin' Runesmith. I know you're not listening because we're not cool enough for you to listen to us, but, uh, Runesmith recently, um, released a video where he name-dropped us, which was really cool. I know a lot of our listeners came from Runesmith's videos and from his social media, so hey guys, thanks for coming. Uh, nice to meet you. <laughs> I'm glad that so many of you are enjoying. Uh, sorry again that we're erratic. Normally we're not like this. It's just been a crazy, crazy year where things that we did not think were going to happen, happened. 
Next, I want to thank all of our patrons, starting from the tippy top going down to the very bottom. Um, all of our Gold Galifar patrons on Patreon, Hunter Meyer, Patrick Dunning, Stephen Robertson, you guys are amazing. I wouldn't give me $10 for what I do, but you do. Thank you. <laughs> um, I know all three of you are just super great guys, so thank you so much. Our Silver Sovereigns, oh, speaking of, um, uh, letters and um, stickers for our Silver Sovereigns and Gold Galifars will be going out soon. Like I said, things have been erratic. We've had everything prepared. It's just been getting the time to go to a post office. Um, so, our Silver Sovereigns, Andro Dezino, Azura, Echo Steel, Hyperlexic, Jack O'Leary, Jared Taylor, Jesse Arvin, Samantha Flynn, welcome, Sassy Bassy, Scott Gunn, and Sunshadow. Thank you all. You are amazing people. Thank you so much. And Sharn, as they say, was built on copper crowns, and so are we. Every dollar counts, every cent counts. All that matters is that you feel the the want to give us even your attention. But thank you to all of our Copper Crown patrons. Garrett Rose, Jesse Harris, who's been with us a long time. Uh, Joshua Young, Chloe Utley, Utley? Utley. I'm going to say Utley, I'm sorry. Um, Moni Thorinson. Theraninson. I hope I said that correctly. I'm <laughs> the worst. Uh, Scotty Parker and Tamara Dillaclark. Uh, hi, Tamara. Um, you guys are amazing. Again, just super cool, super amazing people. Um, I interact with a lot of you guys outside of just, like, you listening to my podcast. Um... Other few updates, we're planning on getting a Discord up and running, which is going to be fun. I'm still working on it. It's kind of hung up on me because I haven't had a lot of time and energy. Uh, work has been taking all of my spell slots. <laughs> um, but we shall prevail. This um, OOC that you are about to listen to is us speaking with the amazing Joshua Megan. He is super cool. He's a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, he does the Politics of Eberron series on DMs Guild. Please give him all of your money. Um, and if you don't want to do that, then just look at his stuff. Like, he's just a really cool guy, does a lot of good work. Um, anyway, hey guys, thank you so much. Enjoy the OOC, and we'll be making some rum cake next week. So, you know, Silas is gonna love that. I, I agree, and I would like to continue this. You, you did bring up the Queen, and I'd like to talk about the Queen's relationship with a certain member of a certain house. Ex-member. Uh, Ex-member of a house. How does that factor into the impropriety uh, of the houses? Do, do you feel like uh, that house would have any 
influence over the activity of Undead? I do think it's a valuable question to look at. And Sassic Vidalis has been very good, actually, about renouncing his ties, recusing himself from various matters. And actually, I would say that Arala has done more than enough to go out of her way to avoid showing any kind of favoritism. I think it's also worth noting that if we were really to look at instances of favoritism and uh, potential conflicts of interest, House Vidalis at the end of the day is based out of Varna in Western Ondaire. And you know, if you're going to look at um, which nation is favoring the house, which nation is potentially receiving undue influence, it's really hard for me to say that mainland on there is the one that is uh, suffering from conflicts of interest. Rebecca and I'm Stephen and joining us today is Joseph Meehan Joseph Ooh, yeah, Joseph super cool guy Joseph this has been an absolute blast we we just did the in-character interview and Silas got to hate on Undare and Joseph was on point the entire time just shooting back with information and actually trying his best and it was it was really enjoyable I, I was really not sure where the episode was going to go, but it went perfect, I, I think. Yeah, Undare is a really fun place to look at, um, both because it plays a lot of classic fantasy tropes straight, right? Like, it is a it is a straight monarchy. Um, there's lots of magic. There's lots of wizards. There's floating towers. Like, you know, like all these things that you would associate with high fantasy um, and maybe the Sword Coast even, but also bringing those Eberron twists and subversions Um in a way that I think provides a really nice contrast to Breland. Um, and it gives you a way where, you know, on this kind of like Western half of Corvair within the Five Nations still, um, you've got two nations, Breland and Ondaire, that um, give you very distinct flavors, but at the same time feel like, yes, these could totally be bordering nations. And, and that is, I think really a testament to Keith and his vision because everyone has their favorite nation. Everyone has the ones that they are like, these are the best. And then these are garbage. And you don't like Faerun. What are the nations? I don't even know the nations. You've got one city. Everyone knows. And you're like, Oh, okay. Are there nations in Faerun? It's more regions. I mean, like some of them are nations, but it's mostly regions um, because uh, kind of getting into that, um, thing that Eberron does so well is that by updating to slightly more modern take, um, they're actually a little bit more intelligible. Um, you know, you've got uh, defined nations and those nations have cultures and that th that's a lot more intuitive to our modern senses um, in a way that 
I think the kind of medieval standards of like, you know, it's all about power projection and it's about, um, you know, uh, like cities and local lords and stuff like all those kinds of things are very unintuitive to our modern sensibilities. And it's not to say that Eberron doesn't have those if you start to dig into them. Um, uh, Keith wrote that Nobles article uh, oh, yeah, in that, August. That, that was good, good so name. good. Yes, so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the, the idea of a nation and having those distinct national borders, um, I think really helps uh, someone who is coming in without like, you know, a degree in medieval history. Like I certainly don't have a degree in medieval history. Um, and that's one of the things that really helped me with Eberron is it's like, okay, like I get the idea that there are nations. And again, there's lots of little details you have to dig into because Eberron does try to capture that more turn of the 20th century vibe um, than necessarily like what modern borders look like. Um, but it is still a, okay, like I have things that I can recognize and use and bring in from my own experience. And I think that uh, with each of the major cities that is given in those nations, they are so very distinct. Like, Metrol is ridiculously beautiful with its palaces up on the, you know, the floating palaces and then... Yeah, the Vermisharns. Oh my god, so so good. And then Sharn, I've been in love with Sharn since the first time I looked at it. Uh, that was one of the first books I picked up for Eberron was the Sharn City of Towers book. Just absolutely phenomenal. Stormreach, another lovely city where you just get all of this flavor and crunch and so good. Yeah, uh, related to the episode, my my first Eberron book was the original Eberron campaign setting. Um, but my second was actually the Forge of War because I got into the oh. setting the month it came out. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so it, it means I've got a lot of history with that book, and while I certainly now recognize a lot of its flaws, um, I actually uh, am the author of the uh, lengthiest review on the DMs Guild uh, for The Forge of War. Um, <laughs> uh, I also think that it's a book that, like, again, like, the book has a lot of misses, um, but it's also a book that, you know, like, at the end of the day, like, has some things that I think are pretty interesting. It's got a couple topics that aren't really covered elsewhere in canon. Um, I don't think they're necessarily covered super well. Um, it's certainly not the richness that Keith brings a lot of the time. Um, I, like, it and Five Nations both suffer from not having that magic touch that Keith brings. Um, because, in my humble opinion, I don't think Ebron would work without Keith. I think Keith single-handedly makes the setting as good as it is. Uh, but... Still so at the yeah. I'm sorry, good. No, no. I was gonna say in in Forge of War specifically, I enjoyed seeing the progression of different armies and how that would affect the smaller towns and cities in those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they were just gave quick snapshots of like, here's where the war was at this time. Here's where the war was at that time. And I know that wasn't super accurate, but it was interesting to think about. Okay, well, this you know area is far enough in Brayland that it shouldn't be affected by war, but it's it's Sharn, and they pushed it all the way up to the gates at times, so I, I mean, how did that affect the people? How do those people, how does your character feel about having the crystal fall? How, how does all of that affect you? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's just really nice. Yeah, that's something we could have brought up in the episode, but didn't, is the um, uh, my, so um, for those not familiar with Crystal Fall, um, there was a big fancy tower in Charn that early in the war fell. And in third edition, it was left as an open-ended mystery who the saboteurs were. 
Um, and then in fifth edition, in Rising from the Last War, it states that it was on Dare. The problem is that there was a third edition adventure, which in Eberron are technically non-canon, um, but still, uh, in the third edition adventure, Fallen Angel, which was converted uh, to fifth edition by Laura Hurstburner, um, the culprit was actually a radiant uh, uh, idol hang cult. On, hang on, that, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. Yeah. If, if you, oh, if you're, yeah, just in case yeah. you you haven't spoilers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let, let, let's try, let's try that again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the third edition adventure, which um, spoilers, uh, the actual culprit um, was a radiant idol cult, uh, and. Um, that kind of contradiction to me, like, bothers me, where it's like, yes, I get that an adventure is non-canon, but overriding an adventure's, like, core premise with a later minor canonical edition doesn't quite sit right with me. So my personal interpretation is that the most common belief is that it was on Daring Saboteurs, but the truth is actually in the adventure. Oh, I, I think that that is the good way to like. May, maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe Undare hit it simultaneously. It's just a uh, weird luck, luck of the <laughs> timing. Yeah, I'm not even going to make a joke about like simultaneous detonations to bring down a tower. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Ugh, God. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> oh, crystal fall conspiracists. Oh, we, we're going to have to get into that. Oh my, oh, my God. God. Are we going to have to have Xander Johns on again? He will return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. It, I'm forgetting what we were originally talking about, but it's just one of those things where there's been a lot. Oh, um, actually, um, for something I did want to talk about, which I kind of got into in the in-character portion, is um, I think that he it's one of those random articles Keith wrote back when he wasn't actually pulling his patients for topics. Um, but uh, last year, Keith wrote a article about what makes a crossbow a crossbow. Um, and I thought that article was just absolutely magical because it pointed out the ridiculousness of a crossbow that you can load and fire once per six seconds. And it's ridiculous indeed. Um, not even to mention that if you're playing a, you know, one of the most classically optimized builds in fifth edition, which is a crossbow fighter with a sharpshooter and specifically the crossbow expert feat, which allows you to leverage um, the extra attack action with your crossbow, um, you can have a fighter that even at like relatively mundane levels, a fifth level is firing two crossbow bolts per six seconds. While yeah. also potentially moving 30 feet in the same round, not to mention whatever you're going to call a bonus action. Um, and you know, an object interaction, right? Like that fighter is absolutely insane. If you try to think about it in a realistic fashion. <laughs> um, now of course, like some of it, I always say like fighters are not average people. Fighters are action heroes. And I say that because I love to play fighters. Um, and I love to play martial characters and it's like, no, this is not a mundane character. This is, you know, um, you know, your die hard, your Rambo, you're like, right. Those are all fighters to me. And they are all definitely not normal people. Um, but that still doesn't get away from the fact that, like, a city guard will have the light crossbow in their stat block, and that crossbow they can fire once per round. Um, and so what I think Keith really did that was really great is he talked about that in Eberron, a crossbow is probably a really great example of technological advancement compared to what you would assume uh, in a classical fantasy setting. Um, and so these are not medieval crossbows that you see in uh, Robin Hood. 
these are, you know, modern inventions where they've got, you know, steel and, um, you know, arcane runes that help you like winch and like load and fire them faster, like all these kinds of advancements. Um, and so that's why in the episode I talked about, you know, a modern crossbow is actually a very advanced piece of technology compared to what the Thrains were using, which is a piece of wood and a string. <laughs> but but it's a really neat piece of wood and a string. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, we we have a we have a game that we are involved in uh, where we all play uh, members of the Silver Flame. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I am a, a foreign born from the Moorholds, and I argued with them the whole time about how useless it was to have a longbow. Like, oh, that's, that's super helpful. Thanks, guys. And I took a crossbow. So I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's just, yeah. So it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, like, you know, if we actually examine the mechanics and then try, because that's one of the things that I think Eberron always did a really good job of in third edition was, okay, D&D &D has all these absurd mechanics. Let's try and make a world that is at least semi-coherent. Now, I'm not going to pretend it's totally coherent, right? Um, my uh, girlfriend uh, is getting a PhD in oceanography. And when she heard about the control weather spell, she flipped. Um, because she is personally a fan of uh, Ursula Le Guin's um, uh, 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 the Earth Sea books. Yeah, the Earth Sea books. Um, and uh, the Earth Sea books, like in the very, in like the third or fourth chapter, makes a point of how weather magic is really bad because you don't know what the ripple effects would be. Um, and so when she heard about that, like, oh yeah, House Lyrander and Eberron like uses control weather towers to like make farming more favorable she's like what does that do to everywhere else i'm like look <laughs> you know um, streams don't 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 exist in eberron it's fine uh, i'm um, getting a note from the booth uh house lyrander is a friend and we <laughs> <laughs> yeah um no but it's that um you know and like obviously like eberron of course like because it's like a created world rather than like you know, has like tectonic plates. Um, like, what does a mountain represent in Eberron? You know, like this is not a spot where two tectonic plates are running up against each other and both pushing each other up. So then, what is a mountain? Um, well, but that, you know, that's a that's a good question. Oh my god! <laughs> you know, like so, like I'm not going to pretend that Eberron is fully consistent. Um, it is not right. It is a D and D world, and the D and D rules have so many idiosyncrasies um, that. Um, are holdovers from past editions, homages to a variety of fantasy sources. Like, you know, it's just like one of those things where like, at the end of the day, D&D &D is trying to be a game, not be an internally consistent world. And I think that's fine. And I think that's really great. But I also like that Eberron at least tries to paper over some of the more absurd parts of D&D. &D. So how did you get into D&D? Um, my dad, uh, my, uh, my father played first edition, um, uh, and, uh, when I was in the third grade, he, uh, was like, you know, you're old enough to, you know, you're 10, you're old enough, uh, you know, let's find out whatever the current edition is. And so, uh, we went to the library and actually found, um, a full set of, uh, 3.5 books that, uh, were all of the library catalog, checked all three out. Um, and I spent a week just devouring them. Nice. Mm. That's that is one a studious third grader. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's weird because like I was in college at that time. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a very big reader. 
Um, so I don't know, like sitting down and just like devouring and memorizing. I mean, that's the fun. And th that's the other thing is I've always been very mathematically inclined. Um, so D&D &D, like hit a lot of really good notes for me. Um, it actually also really helped me with my basic understanding of probability and statistics, which obviously in third grade, right? You're not doing like very advanced probability and statistics. Um, but I was definitely the top of the class at them um, because of D&D. &D. <laughs> I think and this is why Dungeons and Dragons is good for kids. I was just about to say, I think that it is phenomenal when you hear stories about people playing as kids or playing with kids. Some of the ways that people go about solving problems or doing different things in D&D that you wouldn't think of. Mm -hmm. uh, I played D&D for years and I took it home and I played for the first time with my younger brother and he was like, 11 12 something like that and one of the things we did was going through a dungeon and he found a bunch of candles in room two and then used those as markers in the doorways to get back out and i was like what the hell i just assumed you made your way back out after you were done i thought you just 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 sweep that underneath and <laughs> no i i think that there's a lot to be gained from younger people playing i i think it it makes a difference it really oh does. yeah Absolutely. No, I guess, like, I mean, I've definitely, I don't think D&D, I'm not going to go so far as D&D is responsible for uh, my uh, proficiency and um, comfort with math, um, but I don't think it hurt either. Yeah. So Especially not 3-5. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I mean, that that's the thing. This is that, like, I read the entire Dungeon Master's Guide and, like, spent a bunch of time trying to understand the absolutely insane rules in it for, like, generating a population center generating a magic you know like like oh my god the rule like you know like certainly i was no optimizer right i did not spend enough time playing in third edition to understand the importance of things like natural spell is really broken um there, there's a there's a lot in three five that's just <laughs> very broken there's, there's a lot in three five it's, it's a first level feat. It's on the freaking recommended feat choices. Like, this is not a hidden option for druids, and yet it is hilariously powerful. So, um, what is your preferred Dungeons & Dragons edition? God, um, I, this actually very recently changed. Um, for a very, very long time, I've been running a hack of fourth edition that has been getting hackier and hackier over time. Um, you know, like 10 years ago, uh, it was just fourth edition. And, you know, as of a month ago, it was basically unrecognizable. Uh, but with the release of Tasha's, I've kind of given up on the hack and been like, okay, fifth edition now has official psionics. Fifth edition now has a lot of flexibility. I've spent enough time running the edition um, that there are things I'm willing to work around. I'm not in love with the spell slots mechanic, but I think that I've seen enough really clever designs that work around them that I'm willing to accept that this is just how D&D is. Um, and it's also just, there are so many other tools that are designed to work with fifth edition that I felt that my individual productivity and output of like building this hack um, was just never going to compare to the ease and comfort of running 5th edition. Interesting. Well, so it feels like a, maybe that Wargamer sentiment that we were speaking about the other day with Russell. Mm -hmm. Like, Is that what appealed to you about the 4th edition hack that um, you were running? Was that the I more think, Wargame? 
Uh, well, I mean, that. Um, I'm actually also just a huge fan of martial characters. Um, uh, I don't know how that happened, given that I am someone who also likes to play high intelligence characters. But when I played for, I did. Well, I did play third edition. I didn't really get into D and D until fourth edition. Um, like my fourth edition uh, physical book collection is far larger than my third edition collection. Um, when uh, I found the Warlord and I played the Warlord, I just fell in love. It was my favorite character of all time. And that was all, it's honestly been one of the reasons why I've had a grudge against fifth edition is fifth edition does not have a Warlord that captures the magic uh, and appeal of the fourth edition Warlord. And I could never really forgive it for that. Have you thought about, you know, outfitting one yourself? Um, I've certainly spent a bunch of time looking at different Warlord homebrews, and ultimately the I, the conclusion I've come to is the 5th edition core rule set does not create the type of system that allows the 4th edition Warlord to function. Um, whether it is the movement rules, where um, uh, small 5-foot movements don't matter as much because um, uh, the way opportunity attacks and flanking have changed, um, whether it's um, uh, 5th edition's like bounded accuracy is a lot more important um, and while I think that's done a lot of good things for the game it also means that the warlord's tendency to hand out lots of small temporary buffs just like doesn't fit with the system mm -hmm. um, uh, I, and then it's also just in a general 5th um, edition like you, you end up basically having to say um I haven't found a good, good solution that like allows a warlord to properly heal in a way that a fourth edition one did, um, because fifth edition completely redid the healing mechanics. Yeah, I, I was surprised. Uh, <laughs> I've played a bunch of fifth edition, uh, but the healing mechanics came in for the first time ever for me <laughs> in, in, in a game recently, and I was like, oh man, I've never realized all these small, minute things that uh, I didn't pay attention to. Yeah. yeah, I yeah I think that um, the healing surges mechanic in fourth edition was absolutely brilliant and it was a huge tragedy that they dumped um, healing surges for okay healing is tied to the resource expenditure on behalf of the caster. I think that was a huge tragedy. Yeah. But uh, so, are there any other tabletop RPGs that you play? Uh, yes. Um, so I, uh, on Mondays run a Hunter the Vigil game, uh, second edition. So I'm running off of the Kickstarter manuscript. Um, and the premise of that game is, uh, my party started as a bowling team in suburbia, um, which is a made up town somewhere in, uh, the Northeast, uh, of the U S. Um, I've and that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, that game has been running for, uh, I think we started in like April. Um, and oh, so, yeah, so it's been a pretty long running game. The characters have advanced significantly. Um, there have been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of twists and turns. Uh, and, but uh, that's looking like it's going to wrap up within the next month or so. So that is going to be very interesting. Um, uh, the back running plot is one of the characters, um, uh, you know, 20 years before the game started or whatever, uh, lost their significant other to a vampire. And that vampire is now back in town and has big evil plots. Um, and we're heading for a confrontation. Ooh. Oh, yeah, oh. that's a good that stuff. Like a lot of fun. Yeah, um, and there, there's been a lot of like individual character stories and stuff. It's been a really good group. 
That's always yeah. nice when like when when you get all of those subplots just kind of like twisting together. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, it's just been a really good game. Um, uh, I also play a variety of other games. Um, none of my other games are currently running. Um, like uh, I've been play, I've played lots of Power by the Apocalypse systems. I just happen to not be in one of those games right now. Um, and then of course I'm a big fan of uh, other types of games. Um, uh, I actually uh, am going to play a game of the Quiet Year later today, um, which like you know it's not a long running game or whatever, but it's a game. It's a tabletop game. What is it? What is the? Tell me about the Quiet Year. I'm, oh, I'm the familiar. Quiet Year. Um, so it is. It's basically a world building game. Um, the premise is uh, you at the start you um, are a community that has just defeated the jackals and you are rebuilding, and at the end of the game. Uh, you, uh, the, fro the frost shepherds come and what those mean is entirely up to you. I've played it in all sorts of settings, whether it's fantasy, whether it's modern, whether it's sci-fi, um, they're much more, um, metaphors than necessarily like literally these are what these things are. Ooh. Um, and the mechanics of the game is you've got a deck of cards, you sort them in, you, um, take each suit, separate them out, shuffle them together, and then go through each suit in order. Um, so, and then when you hit the um, uh, king of spades, um, that is when the game ends. So you don't necessarily go through all of the different events in winter, um, but each suit represents a season. So you go through all of spring, all of summer, all of fall, and then uh, some portion of the way through winter, and then the game ends. That's a lot of fun. I'm gonna have to look yeah. into this, yeah. Yeah, it's it's got a roll twenty module. Um, it, I'm gonna play with three people. Um, it works best with four to six, in my opinion. Um, although I've actually even played just a one on one game with my girlfriend, um, because she wanted to do some world building for a different game she was gonna run. Um, that uh, was with this kind of like, I've got a large uh, RPG club from college that uh, I still play games with. Um, and it's got enough members that we don't just play one game. It's like, oh, there's like three tables of games. Um, yeah. Um, and so, uh, like all I, so like my girlfriend and I will each run a different table, uh, at, in this club, um, uh, a decent number of sessions. So it's all fun. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so this is a question we ask everybody who comes on. Um, it, it, it's a very wonderful, very easy, classic question. This question is. If you could have one Dungeons and Dragons spell that you can cast in the real world, modern day, what would it be? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, so like, okay, so like, the obvious answer is Wish because Wish can replicate the effect of oh, any eighth level or lower spell. Um, true. Uh, but like, you know, like picking the most powerful spell in the game is a bit of a cop out, right? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, no, especially, I don't. I don't think so. No, <laughs> go big. Go, go for broke. Yeah. No. Uh, right. Especially considering that it literally, like, it's not even a choice, right? It just replicates every other spell. Um. Uh. Otherwise, um, cantrip wise, um, uh, prestidigitation sounds great. Um, like thaumaturgy, uh, would be really fun if I was a theater major. But the reality is, I'm not. I am not someone who needs to walk in and have the door slam open and the window slam open <laughs> and my eyes light up and my voice become booming. Like, you know, like thaumaturgy is fun for that dramatic entrance. Um, but the reality is prestidigitation is just like the most useful cantrip. Um, it's one of the reasons why exploring Eberron outlines that it's actually like six different minor spells. And it's just that because they're non-combat, 
add options. They're one spell for um, the choice of a D&D character. Um, uh, but in terms of higher level spells, um, sending sounds like it would be really useful. Mm, uh, yeah, uh, just because, like, I don't know, like, instantly talk. I mean, like, right, like, sending seems a little silly in the modern era because, well, like... <laughs> I can just text people. Um, Facebook Messenger, yeah. Yeah, you know, like it's it's just like one of those things where it's like, okay, you know, like I we have modern technology that replicates them, but setting seems really useful. Um, teleport obviously would be great. Um, any of the, I mean, e- even Misty Step. Um, but you know, like outright teleport sounds amazing, right? Like especially in an era where like I would like to be able to go places, but I don't want to have to do the part <laughs> where I have to like go all the places in between. Um, yeah. For example, in the, in the world of COVID teleportation yeah. beautiful like not having to go on an airplane that sounds lovely <laughs> um uh yeah so like you know teleport would be nice um but you know that's a seventh level spell um only the most powerful wizards of Aaron of Aaron all have access to that so like maybe that's not totally realistic but even just like um i actually also really wanted mage hand um just because that seems so useful to not have to get up out of your chair to grab things or like <laughs> you know yeah, absolutely. I'm like, has made hand to grab my switch from the dock over there. Yeah. <laughs> As a kid, when you're trying to reach off of the couch to get the remote, you know, like you're just trying uh, yeah. to not leave. Yeah, the ki- yeah absolutely. That'd just be perfect. elongate your arm yeah. by about three inches. Yeah. No, I've, um, yeah, I, I actually, you know, upon consideration, honestly, the spell that I've been most like, man, if I had that right now, I would love it, is Mage Hand. Yeah. Like, prestidigitation would be useful, but I don't think about... Oh, I would love prestidigitation now. Mage Hand, I do think about actively a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I like the idea that you're sitting at work, at your desk, and you're just sitting there and you're like, but Mage Hand. (laughs) 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 It's in your day. Like, like those rom-com, like, super dramatic... Put it down, there's Mage Mage Hand. A special notebook where you've just written Mage Hand over and over. There's hearts everywhere. It's a good spell. It's a good spell. It's it is. Super it genuinely good spell. is. <laughs> uh, uh, Joseph, uh, since we've now introduced magic into the modern setting, and you know us as the Echoers, we've introduced radio into the fantasy setting. What modern day item would you introduce into D&D if you had the option? Um... That's an interesting question. Uh, there are... Um, I'm very interested what Keith writes for the Arcane Science and Industry article coming up because uh, I think that the status of Eberron's industry makes a big difference. Um, and so, like, does it have... Like, how common are um, production lines? How com- Like, what is the status of... Um, uh, like tailoring and um, like looms and all those things, right? Like those would make a huge difference in terms of deciding the uh, fashion of the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I also, um, having recently rewatched the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, um, I also have to say that while it's very controversial, there is a certain level of charm and appeal to firearms that I don't think crossbows or wands can quite capture um and the thing that really gets me is um uh jack sparrow in the first movie has a single has a pistol with a single shot that he is saving for a dramatic 
confrontation. And it, there's a certain level of like a hand crossbow is a little bit bulkier. And well, as we discussed earlier, like everyone can work around that. Um, like it doesn't have that like quite like hip holster level um, that a pistol quite ca captures without just like reworking a hand crossbow to basically be a pistol, but with a bolt instead of a bullet. Um, but there's also just like, you know, I've got one shot and it's for you kind of uh, aspect. I that understand completely. Yeah. We did uh, Skulls and Shackles for Pathfinder at one point in time, and I, I was running it, and the bad guy, they, they just finished all of their work on the island and climbed up to the ship, and the captain of their ship, uh, the person who was in charge, uh, was tired of all of their nonsense, and the first person up the rung, he shot them right then and there. And just face. that scene, the setup of, you know, the single shot taking down that person and all of that was very dramatic. And sometimes it would be nice to have uh, that level for, uh, for, for Aberron. Yeah, and I, it, I can understand both sides of it, though. I mean, yeah, it, it, no, it's funny because I don't even I'm not actually that like I think muskets have a nice appeal and a nice aesthetic. Um, but I think that crossbows can much more easily replicate that vibe um again i recently rewatched um the classic robin hood um from 1992 um featuring uh morgan freeman um oh, so good yeah it's, and like having watched that and having watched pirates of the Car caribbean and like you know the um east india trading company um uh with their muskets like okay you can actually sub out the crossbows and the um uh, muskets between those and if you power up the crossbows enough like you get mostly the same effect of like, okay, everyone fires, then has to take a moment to reload, and then fires again. Um, and with you, know, you don't get that like souped up in Eberron anyway. Yeah, and you you don't get that like like I do. I mean, in Pharaohs, like in the Revolutionary War, the like thick fog of powder um, actually is really interesting as like a battlefield effect, right? Like, okay, everyone lines up, fires off their muskets, and then boom, visibility goes to nothing. And then that incentivizes melee combat. Like, I think there is some pieces of that that I think are really interesting. Um, but ultimately, I don't think that's nearly as important as just, like, the amount of firepower, literally, that a pistol shot brings um, to a small confrontation. Yeah. That's a good answer. Uh, I, I, you're not the first person to say firearm. Because uh, the interview we had the other day mentioned firearms, mentioned and then firearms. I think we've had on one other person who mentioned firearms no. as well. No, no. Well, I, I, think, I so. think firearms are like a pretty notable exception to Eberron. Um, uh, I actually, um, uh, so I'm actually running two different Eberron games right now. Um, uh, one of them uh, is um, based off of the Space Race article that Keith wrote in April. Um, and my party just uh, got to the Obsidian City, which is controlled and owned by the Sulatar Drow. And um, it was actually kind of on the spot. I wasn't really planning to do that at the start of the session. But I was like, you know what would actually make sense? What if the Sulatar had firearms? What if the Sulatar had muskets? Yeah, that, I mean, that is an interesting take on that. Um, partially because I was like, wait a second. This is like an inversion of guns, germs, and steel, right? Where like the... Um, indigenous jungle dwelling civilization um, is the one that has the guns um, and so the explorers are the ones that are actually underarmed uh, yeah no that's uh, I, I really like that I, I like in, inverting tropes like that um, mm. give me just one second Steven's in the room Dental. 
Bye, Joseph. Bye. <laughs> uh, he has to get ready for uh, for his shift work. This yeah, Natalie. Um. Sulatar. 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 Yes. Um. Uh. Yeah. I. I love. I love inverting tropes like that. Um. And I think that Eberron is is the best kind of setting to do that in. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, and you know, yes, I totally get that the Sulatar are fundamentally based on uh, fire uh, bending and fire uh, binding. Um, but given their strong connection to Fernia in the lore, I was like, well, like, given that in exploring Eberron, Fernia got expanded from just like literally fire to industry. Yeah. Um, what if like it had a bunch of like cities set in Fernia manifest zones? Um, like I think that the like to me the way I've been portraying the Obsidian City is that the whole city is under the fires of invention, um, universal trait, and so like people in the city are just like much more productive with their tools, um, and that allowed them to invent uh, firearms. And I think it it also just like provides a very different style of fighting where it's like okay you've got these spellcasters and then you've got you know friggin' musketeers armed with you know like in fire brass which is better than steel. Um, you know, and so it's like, okay, um, you know, right now the party's on friendly terms, but it also helps establish there are all these other, like, considerations and threats and all these things that maybe don't exist in Corvair. Yeah. I really, I really, uh, that's really crun a really crunchy take. Um, crunchy, of course, being an adjective for, for good uh, synonym. <laughs> uh, thesaurus? <clears throat> I know words, I really promise. Uh, <laughs> I do. Um, You're a civis gnome, of course you do. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> really good at words, okay. Um, so, uh, Joseph, you write the Politics of blah, 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 series. Um, of yeah, of which... Yeah, the Politics I, of Eberron series. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I love them so much. They help me so much. Uh, I would be remiss to say that I that I don't have them um, open uh, whenever <laughs> I'm doing research for mm -hmm. uh, any of these episodes. So, yeah. from me to you, thank you. No problem. <laughs> um, but uh, how did you get into uh, writing that series? Um. So uh, I used to write. Uh, content for the video game Heroes of the Storm. Um, but Heroes of the Storm basically got canceled at the end of 2018. It's not technically canceled, um, uh, but they cut the dev team down by like 50 or 80%. Um, so they more or less killed the game. They officially killed the competitive scene. And so my article audience for that game uh, just withered away. Um, and so I spent six months uh, finishing my degree um, where I got I got a double uh, major in uh, computer science and political science. Uh, and uh, it's June. It's uh, of uh, 2019. I'm like, OK, um, it seems like there are a lot of people that um, have questions about like the Brelish Parliament and stuff. There's not a lot of canon information. Um, why don't I just start using my political science degree 
because I have a uh, job as a programmer, so I'm using my computer science major. Um, but given that I've got this political science background, uh, why don't I just like, you know, flesh out the canon on a lot of these institutions that are undercovered? Um, and it all started with me being very interested in um, like spy games and stuff. And like, oh, like that was really the motivation with politics of Karnath, for example, is Karnath's information on its intelligence agencies is completely absent compared to, say, the detail that uh, the Royal Eyes of Vondere or the um, King's Dark Lanterns get. Um, so I was like, okay, what can I do with like the Dark Cabinet? And so it just turned into this like, okay, there are all these different things in all these different nations where either the information is really scattered or it's not really well fleshed out. And uh, I think that there are a lot of people like me who do better when they have more concrete information. Um, and so for me, that was just a process of like, okay, let's just like write these things out, use some real world inspiration for these pieces. Um, for example, for Politics of Breland, my first piece, I spent a lot of time reading about the history of the Brelish Parliament, or the English Parliament, I should say, um, and how uh, it went through a very variety of reforms, um, how there are democratic reforms that people would still like today, um, and like bringing in a lot of those tensions where it's okay, you know, it's got an upper and lower house, but the upper house is unelected nobles, um, just like England had at the start of the 19th century. And what does it mean when you've got a big parliamentary house um, with significant political power that's entirely inherited? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is that is really interesting. Um, now you are you've just released uh uh politics of valinar uh, valinar yes yes and uh, i haven't gotten to read that one it's on my back burner currently that's um, fair it's it's long yeah <laughs> you've been working on it for a while yeah <laughs> um now uh, once you've uh finished all of the the nations in corvair um, are you going? Are you going to expand outward to Sarlona and Zendrik and? Um... Yeah, potentially. Uh, so I mean, it's one of those things where, like, one, there's a lot of nations left in Corvair. Yeah. Um, and two, um, while I um and tangentially associated with uh KBP products, um, you know, I got to play test uh exploring Aberdon. Um, mm -hmm. I don't actually have all that much information to what they're doing. So depending on what Keith decides to cover, I may decide to cover other areas. For example, um, I originally had on my list of things to do politics of Dryam. The problem is, is that uh, exploring Eberron actually basically hit up all the points I'd really want to say about Dryam um, beyond going into individual warlords. Uh, but then I know um, uh, Jared Taylor um, wants to get into the different warlords and Dryam is really one of his passion areas. I'm like, look, I'm gonna let other people in the community create that kind of content because that is their passion i really like drum uh but i mean partially just because like keith really likes drum and his uh enthusiasm is very much contagious um <laughs> but i also want to be someone who is publishing content that other people are not um i mean that's really what started this whole politics series is i felt that there were a lot of people who were publishing adventures and publishing mechanics, but not really trying to get into broader workings that can help dungeon masters create their own games. Mm -hmm. uh, have uh, you considered a politics of the 12 houses? 
Um, I have certainly considered getting into the dragon marked houses. Um, the, uh, the issue is that I found that it's actually really helpful to organize things geographically. So for example, there is a significant house Lyrander section in politics of Valinar. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like covering them regionally, um, I think is a little bit more useful in terms of establishing like concrete ties and how they fit into everything. Um, potentially, uh, you know, in a year from now, I may decide that I want to do dragon marked houses. Um, you know, the future is always unknown. Um, but also since I've shifted to doing these 15 page supplements that are a bit more in depth and provide um, more uh, context um, and all these things, uh, my production time scale has gone a lot longer. So it may be a while before I run out of content per se. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so do have you announced? Have you told anyone what the what the next big project is? Yeah. So I have talked about it in the Discord a few times. Uh, I'm gonna do politics of sire next. Um, right now it's just in the outline stages and me like assembling information and putting things together. Um, I'm uh, also uh, potentially going to be involved with some of the uh, future across Ebron productions. Um, uh, or at least I've been informed I will be. I don't know when that's going to happen, um, but whenever it does, uh, I may also uh, be spending my uh, creative writing time on those. Ooh, nice. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, Across Aberon seems like a pretty fun thing to be a part of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, the Eberonicon was a really, like, uh, even though the, yeah, the Eberonicon was just like a really fun thing to work with mm -hmm. um, and work on with, you know, Laura and Will and Patrick. Um, so uh, we'll see what evolves from there. Yeah. Uh, so um, I want to thank you and I want to give you this time to plug all of your stuff. So. Yeah. Um, so, uh, my best-selling work, uh, that I collaborated on was the Eberonicon, um, which is a, uh, platinum bestseller on the DMs Guild, uh, and, uh, is a very useful tool for anyone wanting just an overview and reference for the setting. Uh, it has a very thorough appendix, uh, that, um, just uh, gives you a list of every single thing in Eberron ever published. Um, and then the content of it is basically here is a summary on every single top level topic in the setting and with references for where you can go read more. Um, I'm really happy with how the Eberron turned out. Um, uh, I have heard uh, through uh, insider sources that uh, a large number of, well, I mean, a large number, I should say, like a number of people out Wizards of the Coast have actually picked it up um, as a reference tool. Um, so, uh, clearly it's something that people find valuable. Um, yeah. and then as for my relatively solo productions, uh, I have, I do have an editor. Um, uh, <laughs> my girlfriend actually is very gracious. Um, <laughs> but, uh, the politics of Eberron series, uh, it's got a full bundle that is available on the DMs guild. Uh, and, uh, each issue, uh, tackles a different country. Um, so I've tackled uh, almost all of the Five Nations. I need to do Sire, uh, which is going to be my next project. Uh, and that will also be kind of a, also looking at the Mornland. Um, that one's going to be really tricky and interesting just because it's like a very much before and after piece. Um, but I talk about Brelin, Thrain, Ondare, Karnath, Talenta Plains, Zalargo, uh, Kabara, the Shadow Marches, 
Um, and then my two most recent ones, um, which are much longer, um, rather than being five pages or 15, are the Lazar Principalities and Valinar. Um, the Lazar Principalities was the one where I really decided I need to do a long one because there are so many principalities. Um, I think I probably spent eight or nine pages just going through all of the different principalities and what they're doing, who's leading them, where they are, like all those types of things. Um, and, um, and it's one of those areas that um, received a lot of really scattered attention across many, many different books. So I want to collate that, but then I also want to look at some of the areas in the Lazar Principalities that don't quite get covered. Um, for example, the mainland Lazar principalities. Um, there's a strip of land that is uh, at the base of the uh, Hoarfrost Mountains that uh, is just like not discussed at all in canon. So I added a bunch of things to it. Um, so yeah, I, anyways, that one was, I was really happy with how that turned out. And then my recent publication, Politics of Valinar, um, even though I didn't write any of this bit, um, my favorite part of it is actually the map that's in the middle of it, um, because it actually puts into context just how close Valinar and Arenel are, and how like it really wasn't that big of a jump for uh, the elves to try and colonize Valinar. Mm -hmm. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, all of your stuff can be found on DMs Guild. Yep, um, and then I also have a personal website joseph-mehan.card.co um, so that's j-o-s-e-p-h hyphen m-e-e-h-a-n period card which is c-a-r-r-d dot c-o nice then um, links are always in the description um, for, for all of this good stuff uh, again, thank you for 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 playing um, the doctor uh, with <laughs> us and um, and joining us and uh, just being like you're super cool. I need you to know that uh, you super intimidate me and you're really cool. <laughs> God, I'm, I'm just a nerd who talks about Eberron. I don't know what makes that what about that makes me cool. Okay, everybody says that, but I need you to know you're cool. And uh, that's just that's it. Yeah, you're you're awesome. Um, and thank you so much again. Yeah, no problem. It was lovely to be on here. I like this. Um, well, I hope everybody uh, checks out all of Joseph's wonderful work, and uh, I hope everybody has a good day. Mm -hmm.